0: Welcome to the Forerunner Church Podcast, where we highlight key messages and themes related to the body of Christ, inviting you to connect with our spiritual family as we grow in passion for Jesus and compassion for people. For more information, visit ForerunnerChurch.com. Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you all this morning. Go ahead and turn to Romans chapter five. Message for this morning is entitled The Gospel and Rejoicing Through Difficulty. We're gonna get, look at some of the unique ways in which the gospel message helps us to overcome and walk through great seasons of of difficulty and trial. I'm gonna read from Romans 1, verse 1, excuse me, Romans 5, verse 1. Paul says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, But we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Thank you, Jesus, for your words. Thank you for the power of the cross. Thank you, Lord, for the truths that are in this and many other places in the word of God, Lord, that by your stripes we have been healed. You've reconciled us to your Father. We delight in your goodness, Lord, your mercy, the forgiveness of God that comes through the power of the cross, We rejoice, O God, that you've washed away our sins. You've made us clean by royal blood. You've purchased us from the dead of our sin. We love you. We ask for a spirit of wisdom and revelation to come today, that we would see Christ, that we would rejoice in him, that we would grow in our humility and our faith in the purposes of God that unfold. Lord, among your people, we love you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Book of Romans lays out for us the clearest overview of the gospel in the word of God. The gospel we know is the good news. It's the good news of our salvation. It's the good news of God's purposes for redemption. It's not limited to what happened at the cross and the resurrection but it certainly includes that. The gospel, one of the things about the gospel that makes it good news is that the gospel is the proclamation that something has been done to us that we could not do ourselves. Something has been done to us. God of his own volition, of his own accord, he sent his son to live the life that we could not live, to suffer in a way that we could not suffer, to die the death That was due to us to suffer the wrath of God and to be raised again and to have victory over hell and the grave and to grant us liberty and reconciliation through His own work. We didn't do anything in that process. Christ did it all and He invited us into it. It's glorious. What Paul says here is that we've been justified by faith in God. That means that we've been made right. And there's been a statement of justice that has been proclaimed. A judgment has been given over the life of the believer. And those that have put their faith, their trust in Christ alone as their source of salvation and their only hope to escape the pains of death will be raised at the last day And will enjoy the glory and the blessedness of God for all of eternity. Paul opens this portion of Romans 5 with the word, therefore. And I've made note of this in many of the Pauline letters and teaching. He uses this word, therefore. And it often points us back to something that he has previously stated. Look back at Romans 4. If you have your Bible, just flip the page there. It's not in the teaching note handout. But look back at Romans 4. And verse 3, Paul says, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And at the end of verse 5, his faith, Abraham's, is credited as righteousness. That means that we've received a deposit of righteousness into the empty deficit bank accounts of our own souls. How would you like to wake up one day and instead of having debt, be in the positive millions and millions and millions of dollars? Amen. Faith in Christ has made a way for the very righteousness of God, God's own righteousness, the very essence of of rightness, purity, holiness that he himself has within his own being to be credited into the bank account of your own life. It is a gift of God. There's nothing that we could do to earn that. There's no way that we could seek to get God to approve of our actions, our deeds. Isaiah tells us that our righteousness is as filthy rags. Paul tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God we are as good as dead until God of his own accord made a way to grant the righteousness of his own father into the bank account of our souls. This is given to us by faith in him. And this truth, justification by faith, is one of the core and most critical understandings of the gospel of Christ. When you begin to look at it, when you begin to study it, when you begin to pray and read and and understand more of the implications of just how audacious this gift is, just how bizarre it is, just how outlandish it is, you have to come to a place where you start to read it and you go, God, this is too good to be true. And when you say that, it's too good to be true, you're just beginning to touch the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is too good to be true feels that way. It's meant to offend our carnal, rational ways of pleasing others, of appeasing others, of earning our way into the approval system that other people have for us in society, and our relationships. We have to prove ourselves in order to be approved. And then here's Abraham And in the context, the Lord is telling Abraham in Genesis 15, he says, you know what, Abraham? He says, I've given you a promise. I've given you a promise of having numerous descendants. That's one aspect of it. Abraham says, I have no son. And the Lord says, you're going to have a son, Abraham. And when Abraham heard those words from the Lord and he believed God, the credit of, God, of God's righteousness was imputed into Abraham. Beloved, this is before the cross. This is before the new covenant. Abraham was justified before God by his faith, and so are you. When you believe God, that's when you become the recipient of the righteousness of God. You become a new creation, a new creature in him. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. This is glorious. And because of this, because the Christian is a unique creature among all the created order, because there is a unique truth, there is a unique God, it causes the Christian to be able to go through the trials, the sufferings, and the difficulties of life unlike any other human they can go through the difficulties of life with a spirit of joy and rejoicing. Why? Why can we rejoice even in the midst of difficulty, pain, and anguish? Why? One of the reasons why is because our approval before God and our victory is given before we even entered the battle In the Christian belief system, we're not walking through our lives trying to get to a place of victory and approval before God. We're not trying to prove ourselves before a righteous and holy God. He's already approved us. You're already walking in the victory of the cross. The war and the outcome of the war has been determined already. It's been prophesied and it's been assured and given to us. There are many battles that are still raging as we move towards the assurance of victory of that war and the final defeat of Satan and all of evil and all of darkness and the reversal of the curse. But presently, we're walking in victory, not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ has done. And it gives us an unusual perspective. It gives us an unusual confidence, or it can, before God. But we have to understand what the scripture is telling us. Because if you're like me, I'm prone to see things with my carnal eyes. I'm prone to feel the weakness of my emotions. I'm prone to live as a prisoner in the moment and make the assumption that the battle that I'm in in the different seasons of my life, is the ultimate war, but it's not. Christ has given us victory through cross, through the cross. The gospel uniquely positions us to go through difficulty and trouble with the capacity to rejoice and hope, because of what Christ has done. Being justified by faith ensures that the victory of the war is sure. Paul says in Romans 8, verse 28, very important verse, he says, we know that all things work together for good to those that love God. And the Christian is given the unique assurance that the difficulty that we go through will ultimately work itself out for good in the long run. But here's the caveat for those that love God. Those that do not love God are not given that assurance. Those that have not surrendered their life to him, that are not pursuing the first commandment to be established in the first place, they're not given that same assurance. They can go through trial and suffering and difficulty in their life and it not turn out for their good. 1 John 5 verse 4 reiterates this idea of the victory of the cross. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. No matter what season of life we find ourselves in, no matter what tragedy, what difficulty, whether we're in our 20s, whether we're in our 50s, whether it's something that happened 10 years ago, 20 years ago, or even presently, the cross gives us assurance that God has overcome the world. All of its evil, all of its perversion, all of its sickness and death, God has overcome it and he's causing us to be overcomers in like manner. Romans 5.3, we're to know something, very important, Paul tells us here. You're to know something. That tribulation is, produces perseverance. And that tribulation, according to John 16, I have the verse there, tribulation is promised to us as human beings. There's nobody that gets to get around tribulation. What does Paul mean by tribulation? Tribulation means times of trouble. It means there's trouble. You're gonna face trouble. Those of you that are 40, 50, 60 plus have been through times of trouble. You know that there's no way to avoid it. As idealistic as we can be at 18, 20 years old, like I was at 18, 20 years old, I had this idea, I'm going to be able to avoid trouble and pain in my life. I'm gonna learn a lot I'm going to learn from people. I'm going to ask people older than me, like, what did you learn? Like, give me wisdom so that I can use that wisdom to avoid trouble. And here's what Jesus says. He goes, hey, by the way, Isaac, um, in this world, you will have trouble. You just will. There's no way around it. He says, but be of good cheer, because I've overcome the world. The trouble will not define you. The trouble will not crush you. You could be pressed on every side. You could be cast down, but you will not be destroyed. Christ has overcome the world. Here's the problem, some of them, with tribulation, trials, troubles. I'm kind of using those terms interchangeably for this morning. Number one, every believer will experience trials, and the temptation into becoming disappointed because of those trials. Every person will face that. As much as we want to use our power and our wisdom and resources and books and teaching and education and foresight, use the prophetic, like give me a dream to know what's about to happen in front of me, it doesn't matter. There's still going to be trials and trouble that come. At the end of 2019, I was seeking the Lord, like many pastors, leaders, I'm sure many of you are seeking the Lord too, for what's going to happen in the new year. We always want it to be good stuff. This is the year that things are going to be way better. Because, man, it just seems like things are... Whew. So, the internet is replete with prophecies and all this stuff. It's the year of revival. It's the year of Jacob's blessing. It's the double-double. Like, don't worry. Revival's coming. It's for sure happening this year. It's 2020. We're going to have 2020 vision in the spirit. I don't even know what that means, but I want it. We get into 2020, and it's like, here's a global pandemic and virus, and you're going to lose jobs, and things are going to go into lockdown, and people are going to get sick, and people you know are going to die. And you're going to be caught in the pain and the confusion and social upheaval and all this stuff. And I just want to be like, Lord, like, couldn't you like have told us this was coming? And one of the things that I find is that I relate to the Bible as a crystal ball. And I go, Lord, just tell me what is going to happen. He says, I'm not going to tell you what's going to happen, but I'm going to tell you how to go through it. The word of God is a a how book. It's it's how we're to respond in the midst of the troubles and the trials that we're to face. This is very important that every trial, every difficult season that we go through, the scripture informs us of how to traverse those things, but it doesn't tell us what exactly is going to happen and what to expect. Number two, it's important to note that trials are those things which we find ourselves in, not the things that we've done to ourselves. If I were to go and rob a convenience store, and, I mean, I guess let's say you just go rob a convenience store, I don't know what people do. Do they go on the run? Do they just wait around at the house? Anyway, eventually the law is going to catch up with you. Okay, they're gonna come to my house, they're gonna knock on my door, they're gonna put me in handcuffs, they're gonna walk me out to the squad car, you know, duck my head in the back. I'm gonna be sitting in there with my hands cuffed and it would be strange for me to start praying, oh Lord, what tribulation has befallen me? Woe is me. Look at this trial upon my life. Lord, this must be you testing me and refining your servant. Like, no, you robbed a convenience store. The trouble and the trial that Paul is talking about, that Jesus is talking about, are not things that we've done that have resulted in the consequences on our lives. It's things that are being done to us or around us that are beyond our control. We don't have the ability to change all of the factors necessary for the trial to stop. That's what makes it a trial. We want to. We want to be able to take control of the moment and make all of the pain stop. But we can't. That leads to number three. We would never willingly choose the trials that we'll experience. We would never willingly choose them. If the Lord were to sit you down right when you get saved and just tell you, hey, here's all the things that are about to happen to you. Here's all the trials. We would think that information would somehow bolster us and make those trials easy but they're not. We would never choose them. We don't have the wisdom. We don't have the ability to determine the how, the why, the what, the how long related to the trials that we endure as believers. And we're all to expect trials. So the 20-year-old's The teenagers, those in our lives that we're discipling, we need to tell them, hey, guys, for sure trials are coming to your life. Don't get this idea that there's some way to circumvent pain and suffering and difficulty and setbacks and disappointments. There's no way to get around that. that. That's called the new earth. That's called the age to come when he makes all things new in the created order and defeats death, the last enemy. But that time is not now. We would never willingly choose the trials. And number four, we wrongly imagine that the trials that come, they're too much and that they're too long. So these are our complaints against God. God, you've put me in the wrong trial. I'm in the wrong one. supposed to be over there in that one. Uh, The trial that I'm in, the season that I'm in, past seasons, present, whatever it is, the season that it's too much for me to bear. It's too much for me. You don't know what you're doing. We actually have a complaint against the leadership of God in our lives that's saying, you know what? This is, you got it wrong, this one. You got it wrong. And this trial is lasting way too long. Um, No one likes to be in pain, especially for an extended period of time. No one's just like, I mean, sure, like I'd say yes to four hours of pain, but don't give me five, you know? Pain is pain. Uh, Difficulty is difficulty. Any, Any time our lives are... Uncomfortable, unsettled, things are out of sync. We want it to end and we want it to end quickly. Go to page two. Tribulation and these trials, Paul tells us, it produces perseverance. Uh, The word perseverance means to remain under. To remain under it if you've ever worked out, if you've ever tried to go distance running, you know what this means to remain under difficulty. The Lord allows tribulation, seasons of trial to touch our life because you can't get perseverance without that pressure. You can't get endurance, which is essentially the same word for perseverance. You can't get endurance without stretching yourself beyond what you thought was possible from yesterday. If you wanna be a long distance runner, you have to continually put yourself in a position of discomfort, of being under pressure so that over time, what happens, you build up endurance for long distance running. Before my wife and I were married, we were, well, she was training for a half marathon. I was cheering her on like any good boyfriend. And she comes to me and she's like, why don't you come running with me today? And I should have said no, but I said yes. I had no endurance built up because for me it was day one. For her, she had been like training for maybe a couple months. I don't know, a month at least. She's like, let's go running. The power of shame was stronger than the power of rationale for me to say no. So I said yes. So we're running. We get about a mile in, and that's when I can't talk anymore. Yeah, it's like kind of like fun. It's like, oh, let's go run like as a couple, like, like guys, maybe your wife has asked you like, let's go work out together. It'll be fun. We can like connect and spend time together. Not if you're actually working out. <laughs> Anyways, we're running. We're like a mile in. I can't talk anymore. She's just having a grand old time, you know, just chatting like, what's wrong? And I'm like, nothing wrong And I'm digging deep, man. I'm digging really, really deep. I'm not gonna be humiliated and, you know, have to stop or slow down. I don't need water. Nobody needs water. (laughs) We don't live on water, guys, okay? So we're going along. We complete some, I think it was like four miles or something, maybe a little more. Yeah, thank you. I mean... So we get back. My house is on the way. Uh, She's headed back to her apartment. We get to the driveway of my house. I I still can't speak. And uh, she's just like, all right, bye. She just turns around and, like, starts, like, you know, jogging off to her house. I'm like, and and I fall in my yard, and I throw up (laughs) multiple times in the front yard, which is if you ever like really push yourself in running that 's like a that 's a thing, and uh it 's not weird guys okay so anyway so i'm <laughs> i'm i 'm in the front lawn i 'm just i 'm doing my thing i 'm all alone i 've now been abandoned, she has no idea it 's hurt feeling you know whatever so i 'm laying there, and then I kind of like roll out of the grass into the driveway and I lay in the driveway i don 't know like a good hour probably just to try and make it inside. It was too much to go inside at that point. So I'm just laying in the driveway and later I call her and I'm like, hey, like you left me, you know, and she was just like, what? And I'm like, do you know what happened to me? You know, I was, I'm in the throes of death over here. You're just like trot away, like no big deal. The, the point is, You can't get perseverance and endurance for distance without being under great strain. There's just no other way to do it. If you want spiritual perseverance, the place to get spiritual perseverance is not having someone pray for you that you'd receive spiritual perseverance. If someone prays for you to have spiritual perseverance, that is green lighting heaven to make your life really hard. It's like like when you pray for patience. Like, God, make me patient. He's like, okay. Here are tons of annoying people. Guess what? Some of them live with you. You can't leave. They're going to be there year after year. Maybe they're your kids. You know, it's like the parent that's like praying, God, make me a patient parent. Like maybe you've broken down as a parent and just like yelled that in your house, in the car, whatever. I've totally done that. And the irony of it is you're in the exact environment to cause patience to grow in your heart right then. That's it. That's how we do it. We depend on God under strain, under the difficulty, under the pain. We depend on God. And perseverance is produced in our hearts. Look at what Hebrews says, Hebrews 10, 36. The writer says, you have need of endurance so that after you've done the will of God, you would receive the promise. It's not just enough to be told as Abraham, hey, you're gonna get the promised son, don't worry. You have to endure, you have to stay with it. I mean, the dude's, he's 100 years old by the time he finally has his son. That's some Serious endurance, guys. You're enduring, I mean, decades and decades. You can't just give up on the promise that's given. You've got to stay with it. You've got to stay with the calling, the, the assignment, the, wherever the Lord has you, whatever, however he's leading your life, you have to stay with it in a spirit of perseverance. So that the things that he's promised to you, that they would actually happen. That they would be granted. Now, here's one of the things that perseverance does. Perseverance produces character. So we have trials that are necessary to produce perseverance, which is necessary to produce character. The word character means, in essence, if you look it up, it means to be tested and true. True. It means to be refined. We have to remember that God isn't just putting our life through testing and trial so that our circumstances all get blessed. It's so that your heart becomes transformed. We're becoming a person. His name is Jesus Christ. And we wouldn't choose to be like Jesus if we knew what it meant to follow Jesus. I mean, he tells us over and over, he's like, pick up your cross and follow follow me. We're like, oh, that actually means something else. That doesn't mean that I'm gonna go through suffering and pain and difficulty, and I'm gonna find myself in situations that I, I don't wanna be in. And the Lord goes, if, if you go through trials, perseverance will grow in your heart and that perseverance will give way to character. What happens under trial? Well, you find out who people really are and what they're really like. You find out who you are. It's not because God doesn't know what's in your heart and he's just like, let's crank up the heat on this guy's heart and just see what happens. Let's see what's there. It's because I don't know what's in my heart. And the Lord allows the pressure, the refining fire. He allows the trouble around me to bring to the surface all the things that don't look like Jesus. He says later in Romans 8, verse 29, the Lord has predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son. That is the goal. That's where you're headed. That's where I'm headed. But my emotions... My thought processes, my words, the way I do finances, all of that isn't all conformed to the ways of Christ. So Jesus goes, I have a plan to see those things formed in your heart. It's called heat. Nobody likes the heat, but the heat is what exposes and brings to the surface the dross, the the disagreements, the the value systems that are not in agreement with the heart of God and brings them to service. Why? So that we can deal with them individually. That when my heart is filled, all of a sudden it's like this bitterness or or anger or offense or unforgiveness is like boiling up in my heart. It's not so that the Lord goes, see, that's what you're really like. So he goes, no, now come to me. Now come to the cross. This is, I'm gonna show you ways that you need the blood and my sufferings and my spirit in ways that you can't even comprehend yet, but the heat will show it. I'd encourage anyone that's, they're not yet married or you're engaged or you're on your way to marriage, all right? The best way to know who that person is that you're gonna join your life to forever is to see them in a crisis, because in the crisis, all the niceties and the ways that we could fake people out, it just goes out the window, it just does. That's just the nature of the crisis and the pressure. You can have, you know, this girlfriend and be like all sweet and whatever. And you could fake people out and you could fake people out and then marry them. Some of you did that. People are on to you. They know what you did. They know that you, you acted one way for 18 months, and then now you're married, and you're acting a completely different way. Guys and girls, I'm talking about here. I'm not just... We're all busted. We're all guilty at the foot of the cross. No one can posture. No one has the moral high ground. A righteousness, filthy rags all fallen short of the glory. We all deserve the wrath and the punishment of God. We deserve it. Yet his mercy, yet the grace of God, yet our God that delights in showing mercy. Isaiah 30 says that the Lord, he longs to be gracious to us. That's what he's waiting for. He's, he's looking for a moment in our lives in the midst of our brokenness and pain and sinfulness. He's looking for a moment to come and show grace. It's a whole new way that we can adopt the ways of our father in our own lives and our parenting and our marriages and our relationships. We're like, okay, where is a chance that I can show grace in the midst of this difficult situation where can i be gracious where can i give someone what they what they don't deserve where can i give my child that's being rebellious and stubborn and hard-hearted where can i give them something they don't deserve to show them the grace of the heavenly father our character is meant to be like Jesus. And this shows us, under paragraph B, this shows us that our trials, our suffering, the things that are happening in a whirlwind around our life, that it's not meaningless, but it's redemptive. Because we come out with a character that looks and smells more like the fragrance of Christ. I mean, nothing else matters than us looking more, sounding more, acting more like Christ, feeling his emotions, carrying his heart. That's what God is after. That's what he's, he's looking for. And I have all of these things bubbling up in the surface of my heart because the heat is up. Lord goes, this is about you being conformed to Jesus, my son. I go, yes, Lord. And what character does is that character then leads to hope and a strengthening of our hope. Verse five says, hope does not disappoint. Because one of the things that happens in trials and trouble is that we become pro- profoundly aware of disappointment. And when we give in to disappointment, which means things are not going the way that we anticipated them going. So we had a vision and a trajectory of our life and all of a sudden there's this like divergent detour, (sighs) this way. And now the temptation to become disappointed and when we let that disappointment seep in and marinate and just kind of take up residence in our life, it becomes despair. We lose our hope. We lose our confidence in the surety and the victory and the overcoming power of the blood in the grand redemptive story that we end up with him on the sea of glass in the age to come. What is hope? Hebrews 6.19 tells us that hope is an anchor. Biblical hope is different than carnal hope. It's different than worldly hope. It's different than Hallmark movies hope. You know, every Christmas, little kids make their Christmas lists and they kind of, you know, maybe pray by their bedside. <laughs> they're hoping against hope that they get all the things on their Christmas list. And they've got like all sorts of wild stuff in there. You know, they've got a puppy, they've got, you know, a horse, a chariot, pirate ship. I mean, it's, it's just all on there, man. And they're just hoping it's, But worldly hope is more wishful thinking because there's nothing that can guarantee that that's going to happen or not. There's no guarantee for worldly hope. There just isn't. That's why biblical hope is so different. Biblical hope isn't wishful thinking. It's not like, well, I hope things turn out for the good. The Bible tells us, no, it's going to turn out for the good. No, there is a day of full justice and recompense and all things being made new. That. That is sure, you know what's sure is the resurrection of the dead. Actually, the Bible connects together the ideas of the hope and the resurrection of the dead. Beloved, the resurrection is not wishful thinking. If we're sitting here going, I hope I get raised from the dead one day, we're not living the gospel and our hope is, is vain. We might as well all just leave. Because hope is an anchor. Hope is a surety. How do we know that the resurrection is a surety? Because Christ got up out of the grave, y'all. 500 people saw this man who was dead, now alive. And he tells everybody, he says, in the same way, the same power that raised me from the dead, guess what? It's going to raise you and it's going to restore and redeem all of the created order. So this is not about wishful thinking. This is about fact. This is about a historic event that gives us confidence that God is going to make all the wrong things right. And so through the trouble, into the perseverance, into our character being formed, our hope is made sure. There's no other way to get a stronger hope in God than by going through seasons of difficulty. There just isn't another way. Now to the really weird stuff that Paul said. He says in verse two, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Amen, brother, woo, like we're in. And he says something that's so weird in verse three, he says, Not only that, but we glory in tribulations. I'd be like, Paul, you're, you're not okay, buddy. You're not thinking clearly. Imagine telling, you know, just a, a secular worldly therapist, like all the trouble in my life, I glory in it. They're going to prescribe you something, it doesn't make sense. Beloved. The gospel is not about making sense to our human rationale. It's not here to appease carnal, worldly, demonic wisdom. It's not to make us popular. It's not to make us seem wise. It's not to make us seem powerful and strong. The gospel is weakness. The chief sign of our victory is a Roman torture device. Hello? God's not here trying to win a popularity contest and get us to seem like we've got it all figured out. He goes, no, you're gonna go the way of my servant. You're gonna go poor, you're gonna go broken, you're gonna go destitute, and you're gonna love me in such a way that I'm gonna get you up out of the ashes, out of the dust, at the last trumpet. There's no way that you come out the smart people. So the Lord's chosen the foolish things of this world to shame the so-called wise. He's chosen the base things to shame the things that the world calls so lofty and wise and strong. And he goes, I'm not interested in any of that. I'm just not interested in that. How do we rejoice in tribulation? Two wrong ways to view it and one right way that I think Paul's inviting us into. Number one, wrong view that tribulation that the trouble itself is the source of our rejoicing. There are people, there are people that believe that because the suffering is on them, they, they look for it, they they anticipate it, they're more comfortable in the suffering, but not in a redemptive way. They're rejoicing that suffering is there. Paul's not saying we rejoice in. In the suffering, as if the suffering is the source of our joy. It's not. It's not more virtuous to have more pain and suffering in our life. The second wrong view is that we ignore all of the trouble, we block out the negative emotions from our own souls. We block out feeling pain, sorrow, anguish, we block out grief, we block out the grieving process. We, we block out tears, we block out doubt and fear and all the things that are normal to the human experience. We block those out. We say, we don't need that. I'm gonna shut off my emotions because I'm not gonna feel the pain of this life and I'm just gonna rejoice anyway. Paul's going, no, that's not what we're talking about. The Lord has not called you to disconnect from your emotions, He has not called you to thumb your nose at the human broken experience. You know what? The human broken experience actually exalts the cross even more. If you continue to deny pain and not allow yourself to feel disappointment and rejection and all that and just kind of do this fake Christian plastic, the joy of the Lord is my strength at all times, I will feel no negative emotions, you're not even being like Jesus. Even Christ himself was acquainted with our sorrow and our grief. He was a man of sorrows. They thought he was Jeremiah the prophet because the dude was weeping all the time. So we got to touch. We got to unlock our heart. We got to allow the pain and the tribulation. We've got to let it touch us. We've got to sorrow. We've got to grieve. We've got to grieve and mourn over our own sin, over the sins of others. We've got to experience the pain and the anguish of the incompleteness of this age, the injustice of it, the difficulty, the sorrow of it. This is not okay. This is what I think that Paul is saying we feel the trouble, we allow it to touch us. I mean, the people that I see in the Bible, they're, they're filled with sorrow and grief and tears and lament and pouring out their soul. And men and women, all throughout biblical history, all throughout church history, they're very in touch with their, they're not denying their emotions. They're going, no, God, this is hard. They're, but they're surrendering it to God. They're not allowing it to dominate them, to define them and to set the trajectory of their life. They're allowing it to touch them though. And yet even this, in the midst of our sorrow, in the midst of our grief, the power and the love of God is present with us right in the midst of our tribulation and our sorrow. That's why Paul and Silas can feel the pain of the chains in the prison, and yet sing to God. Because their hope isn't in the present circumstances. It's not in the comfort. It's not in the, God, you didn't lead my ministry in the way that you wanted. That's not their hope. That's not their comfort. That's not their confidence. Their confidence is in the Lord. Their confidence is in, put me in chains all day long. God's gonna get me out of the grave. I could suffer all day long, but at some point, the suffering will cease. The tears will be wiped away. All of the sorrow will end. The dawn will rise. The darkness will come to an end. This is sure as rain, y'all. It's going to happen. And notice what Paul says. Let's uh, have the worship team come out here. Notice what Paul says in Romans 5, 5. He says, the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Did you catch it? This is what you're supposed to catch. It's past tense. Paul goes, tribulation produces perseverance, produces character, produces hope. And the love of God has been, before the trouble ever touched you, it's been poured out in your heart. In other words, the prize walking through the pain and the anguish and the suffering isn't gaining the love of God that's already been given, which means it's been there, poured out in your heart by the Holy Spirit in a way that no one can take from you, no death can take from you, no pain can take from you, no anguish, can take, no loss can take away the love of God that's been poured out in your heart by the Holy Spirit. The love of God is not waiting for you to be cuddled and coddled on the back end of suffering and tribulation. It's right there, poured in your heart, alive by the Holy Spirit, in the midst of it. In the very on the worst days, in the midst of our anguish, we hit rock bottom. He says, My love has been poured out by the Spirit past tense in your life. You're not trying to get to my love. You're not trying to get to who I am. He says, I've already given it to you. You've been justified by faith. See, now we've come full circle. It's the beginning. It's the introduction to our walk with God. We've already received the Holy Spirit and the love of God poured out. God's not waiting to see how you respond through the sufferings of your life. And he says, okay, then I'll give you my love. Then I'll show you my heart. No, he goes, I, I'm right there with you. I'm walking with you through every season of the soul. It's been poured out. Amen, let's pray. You can stand. Father, we love you. We love you because you first loved us. We take steps toward you because you've already been running toward us. We love you that our victory is assured in you, that we overcome because of you, that you have all power, might, and wisdom. All of history belongs to the Lord. Here we are, God, your people. We're weak, we're broken, we're confused, we're wrestling through fear, through doubt, but you love us. Your smile, Lord, is toward the heart of your children. You're conforming us to the image of your son. We're being brought day by day by day, nearer to the throne, nearer to the cross, lower and lower and lower in humility. We bow down, Lord. We surrender our ways to your ways. We surrender our strength to your strength. We humble ourselves, Lord. What is it that you're showing me? What is it that pressure and and refinement is, is bringing to the surface in me, Lord? I surrender it to you. Wash me, God, in the blood of Jesus. Let my boast, let my confidence be in the Lord. Let it be in the cross. Let it be in the Gospel. Let it be in the wounds of my Lord, bleeding from His side, bleeding from His hands, His head, His feet. There, there is my confidence. That's my reward in you. There I find my comfort. There I take my pain. There I bring the ashes of my own sins and my own failures. I bring it there, Lord. Wash me, refresh me, make me white as snow. If you'd like to receive prayer this morning, the Lord's touching your heart. Maybe there's a fresh surrender. Maybe there's a fresh repentance, a confession that you need to enter into. Maybe you need to reach to the Lord for a fresh strength today. I wanna to invite you to come forward. You could stand on these lines up here. We have a ministry team that's ready to pray with you, pray for you. Others of you, it's not an emotional thing or a spiritual thing. It's a physical thing. You're sick in your body. You're confronted with pain or migraine headaches, sleeplessness pain in your joints, pain from past injuries, and you're going, Lord, I'm believing again. The God of power that can heal and restore and redeem. I wanna invite you to come up to the front. Stand along these lines. We're gonna invite our leaders and leadership team just to come out here. Lord, our confidence is in you. We, We love you. We bless the name of the Lord. The almighty God, Jesus Christ, the Lord, the victor, the victor over sin, the victor over our brokenness, the victor over disease and death in the grave. We bless you, Lord. We love you in Jesus' name. Thank you for tuning in to Sunday Sermon. For more information, service times, and free teaching resources, visit ForerunnerChurch.com.